Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. Easter is coming up, and we would love to invite you to Easter at Collective. This year, we'll be having three services on Sunday, March 31st at 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m. It's going to be a great day, so we want to encourage you to grab your family, your friends, and your neighbors to come and celebrate with us. So mark your calendars, because you won't want to miss it. Now let's get into Sunday's message. A few years ago, Abilene Christian University did a study exploring how Christians integrate their faith and their careers. And they put their findings in a book called Christians at Work. And one of the results of this study was that they found that there are basically three groups of Christians when it comes to work. The first group they called the onlookers. And they were called this because they just essentially onlook in both places, meaning they're passive about both faith and work. While they believe in God and they have a job, they have a career that they're a part of, they don't try to grow or develop or excel at either. They just kind of exist in both spaces. The second group of Christians, they called the compartmentalizers. And this ended up being the majority of people that they surveyed. Compartmentalizers are people who are good at faith and they're good at work. They care about both. They try hard at both, but they make sure that their faith and their work never actually meet. They always keep them separate. They keep them compartmentalized. And the third group of Christians, they called integrators. These are the people who are very passionate about both work and faith. And they've come to understand that these two things are inseparable. Because they believe that faith impacts their work, and work is the primary place where their faith is lived out. The study also found that integrators are always looking for ways to improve. They strive to be the best employee, the best parent, the best spouse, the best follower of Jesus they can be, meaning integrators on their growth. They also found that integrators are more likely to take risks than the other people in the other groups. And again, this would be true in both faith and work because integrators see these two things as connected. Here are a few more things about integrators that they found during these studies. They asked the integrators, how much do you agree with this statement? I can clearly see how the work I am doing serves God and has a higher purpose. And 66% of them agreed that this was true. Here's another one. When showing them the statement, I want to make a difference in the world, 91% of integrators agreed. Next one was, I find purpose and meaning in the work I do. And 87% of integrators said this was true. And the last one, as a Christian, it is important to mold the culture of my workplace. And 72% of integrators agree. I don't want to bore you by continuing to give you endless stats, but to put context around this, when they ask the onlookers and the compartmentalizers the same questions, they didn't agree with any of them. They said that none of those things were true. And so the people in the other two groups think, I'm lost at work. I don't find meaning in what I do. I don't impact culture or the people around me. I'm just kind of there. And my guess is that many of you feel the same way when it comes to work. If I had to ask you right now to place yourself into one of these three groups, are you an onlooker, a compartmentalizer, or an integrator, what would you be? And more importantly to that question, what would you want to be? Today is the last Sunday in our series called God and Work. And over the past few weeks, we've been trying to figure out how to bring value to the 90,000 hours of our lives that are dedicated to work. And the goal of this series hasn't been to get the 90,000 hours cut down to 80,000 hours. The goal of this series hasn't been for me to convince you to quit your job. 
The goal of this series has been to help us change our approach when it comes to work and these 90,000 hours by taking that time seriously without tying our purpose and our calling to our career. Colossians 3.23 says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. And Paul, who wrote this, says, in everything we do, in our marriages, in our mental health, in our parenting, we should work as if we're working for God and not other people. The problem, though, is that when it comes to our careers, we are often working for other things. We're working for a paycheck. Or we feel like we're working for a boss. We're working for retirement. We're working just to get to the weekend. And so what ends up happening is we end up being these onlookers or these compartmentalizers when we're supposed to be integrators. If you are a follower of Jesus, faith and work are inseparable. Really, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to be an integrator. And so in this series, we've talked about how work is a gift, how your calling is to live out your faith at work, how your identity comes from God and it doesn't come from our careers. And as we close things out today, here's what we're going to talk about. You are a missionary. You are a missionary. Now, when you hear that word, some of you are, are feeling a little bit anxious because my guess is when you hear the phrase missionary, you start thinking about people who sell everything they have and head off to another country to tell people about Jesus. This May, as a church, we're going to be sending out our first set of global missionaries. They're heading to a region in East Asia that has no concept of who Jesus is. There are no churches. There are no pastors. Christianity doesn't really exist in that place. And this couple is uprooting their lives with the hopes of bringing grace and truth to people who desperately need it. They're trying to share the good news with them. And this couple, they're heroes of the faith for doing this. They are missionaries, but so are you. You are just a missionary in Frederick. You are a missionary. You are a missionary at work. You are a missionary at school. You're a missionary in your co-op, in your neighborhood, and on your team. When you get baptized and say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, Jesus is my leader and forgiver, you're also saying, Jesus, I'm a missionary from this day forward, so let's go. Where do you want me? Send me to that place. And while God does call some people to be a missionary in a foreign land, most of us are called to be missionaries right here where we live every single day. Luke 19.10, Jesus said this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Here's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, I'm on a mission. Meaning the reason I came here, came to earth, is to seek and save lost people. It's to bring God's lost children home, ultimately, is to make heaven crowded. He, he says, my mission and my purpose is that every person who is far from God can know that they are loved, that, that they can be forgiven, and that they can have a relationship with God. This is why Jesus left heaven and came to earth. It was to seek and save the lost. Here's the thing, though. Jesus understood that in order for lost people to be found, he would have to give up his own life. He couldn't just travel around telling other people about God. He would have to be the perfect sacrifice in order to pay off the debt of our sin. So he did that willingly. And then he was buried in a tomb, and three days later, he resurrected from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God proving that he has the power to conquer death, proving that these promises that he gave us of grace and forgiveness and new life are things that can be trusted, really proving that he would do anything to seek and save lost people like us. But then what did he do? Before ascending into heaven to be with God, he passed that mission onto his followers. He passed that mission onto us. He tells us that we have to continue what he started. 
Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, it says this, Jesus came and told his disciples, and a disciple is just a follower of Jesus. So Jesus came and told them, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's saying, I am authorized by God to do this. Right? I, I have the authority to tell you this thing. He says, go, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These verses are often referred to as the Great Commission. It's Jesus telling his followers to be missionaries. It's him telling them to go and make disciples, to go seek and save the lost, to go and bring God's lost children home, to go and continue the work that he started. And in these verses, he gives us three main actions. There are three things he tells his followers to do. He says, go, baptize, and teach. Go, baptize, and teach. So we're going to break these down. Let's start with the word go. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. In the Greek, which is the original language that the Bible was written in, the word go is something called a participle. And if you remember sentence diagramming from middle school, you probably remember that a participle is a verb with an ing ending. Side note, can we all agree that sentence diagramming is the worst I still have memories of that since middle school. I, all you English people are like, I love it. Go do it at home then, okay? I, I, I dread the day. My kids are going to come home at some point and be like, Dad, diagram this sentence. And be like, I don't understand English. Like, I can't, I can't do this. Ask your mom. She'll figure it out. But because this is a participle, it's better to understand this as while going, right? While going, make disciples of all the nations, which means while you are living your life, while you are working, while you are at school, while you are raising your kids, make disciples. While you are doing those things, tell other people about Jesus. While you are doing those things, share your faith with people. While you are doing those things, live in a way that shows that Jesus is real. While you are going about your life, seek and save the lost. And here's what this looks like practically. It looks like driving to work and praying every day, God, please give me the opportunities to share my faith today. It looks like seeing your coworker who's struggling, who is hurting, who's going through something that they never thought would ever happen to them. And instead of compartmentalizing your faith and your work, you ask them if they want to grab coffee to talk about it. And after listening with thoughtfulness and empathy, you choose vulnerability and you share your own story and how you know what it feels like to go through something in your life that you never thought would happen, but how Jesus got you through it. Right? You share with them, Jesus doesn't make everything perfect. There wasn't any magic with it. But when God says, I am with you to the end of the ages, you believe it. And when you were going through that terrible thing, that brought you peace. And that brought you hope. And that gave you the faith to keep going. It looks like creating opportunities to build relationships with the people you work with and sharing the things that are important to you. And so you talk about your hobby and you talk about your pets, but you talk about your church. And one day they will ask you why you go to church and you get to share with them why you love this place so much. It looks like working hard and showing patience and constantly striving to be the best version of yourself. So when your boss notices and asks why, you tell them that it's because you follow Jesus and because scripture teaches that you should work as if working for the Lord so you do that every single day. It looks like taking opportunities to invite people. To say, come and see what God is doing in my life. Come sit with me, be a part of this with me. Did you all know that Easter is only four weeks away, right? That's crazy, isn't it? Some of you still have Christmas trees up, okay? It's time to take those down. Jesus was born. He's about to die and resurrect, okay? You're running out of time. 
But Easter this year is March 31st, and we're gonna talk more about Easter over the next few Sundays, but I wanna share with you all today what our plans are because we're gonna host three Easter services this year. So the service times are on the screen. They'll be 8.30, 10 a.m. or 11.30 a.m., right? So this means we're not doing our normal 9.15 and 11 a.m. services that day. So for Easter only, 8.30, 10 a.m. and 11.30 a.m., 8.30 10 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. Some of you are wondering why I'm saying this over and over again. And that's because a few weeks ago when we changed our service times to 9.15 instead of 9.30 and we kept the 11 o'clock service, a bunch of you showed up at 11.30 and you're like, I thought the service times changed. Like, wrong service. That was the other one. So I need to make sure this sinks in for everyone. Easter services this year, 8.30, 10 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. We're going to talk more about this over the next few weeks, what service you should attend, why you should show up early, all that stuff. But this is a great opportunity for you to invite your coworkers. Can I let you in on a little secret about my staff? Uh, They are jealous of you. They, They really are. And they're jealous of you because for 40 plus hours a week, you are surrounded by people who don't have a relationship with Jesus yet. Because you work with people who don't know about grace and endless second chances. Because every single day, you have the opportunity to seek and save lost people. And don't get me wrong, my staff loves what they get to do, but one major thing that is missing from their lives is the opportunity every single day to invite a coworker to church, to to bring someone here to this place and watch them bump into Jesus and watch their life change forever. And they long for that. So while working, while teaching, while managing the finances, while creating that project, while leading your staff, while serving others, while learning, make disciples. Continue to seek and save the lost. All right, here's the next action. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Practically every Sunday at Collective, we talk about baptism as a next step that people should take. But I want to spend a little bit more time this morning talking about what baptism is and why Jesus would tell us to be baptized. Baptism is mentioned over 100 times in the New Testament of the Bible. When you read through the New Testament, you'll read that Jesus was baptized, that Jesus taught his disciples to baptize other. When you read the book of Acts, which was written about the start of the church as we know it, you read that every single conversion story, people going from non-belief to belief, every single one of those includes baptism. And like what we just read in Matthew 28, we also read that Jesus commands that we get baptized. Baptism is the physical action that represents your belief and your faith in Jesus. And just to be clear, baptism doesn't save you. The Bible teaches in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace through faith. But in the New Testament church, meaning the church that started right after Jesus resurrected from the dead, a person's baptism was always the first expression of faith. Faith in Jesus and baptism were never separate. And so baptism was not just a symbol or a memorial of faith. It's not an outward sign of inward grace. Baptism was intended to offer a means of union with Christ and a benchmark of transformation. It's kind of planting that flag in the ground, making it the place in time when you made a commitment to Jesus. The word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to be immersed in water. So every time you read about baptism in the Bible, it's a person getting dunked in water as a way of proclaiming their faith in Jesus. And baptism symbolizes their own death, burial, and resurrection. When someone is baptized, they're lowered into water, representing the death and burial of their old way of living. It represents the death and burial of their old way of thinking. It it represents the death and burial of their old lives. And then they're raised up, they're resurrected 
as a new creation in Jesus. And what's really cool about this Greek word, baptizo, is that it wasn't just a word that was used in the Bible. This word was used in contemporary literature during the time, and one of them was in connection to dyeing cloth. When someone wanted to dye a white cloth, they would baptize it and dye. And so think about what's happening here. If you're dyeing cloth, you're not going to walk up to it and sprinkle it a little bit. You're not going to pour a cup of something over it. You're going to dunk it into water. Another time that this word was used was in relation to military battles. In Greek literature, there's a story about a battle between these two ships from opposing nations, and one ship baptizes the other. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean the ship got really close and kind of splashed it a little bit. It sunk it. It sent it to the bottom of the sea. They baptized it. And so the word baptism means to be immersed. And I'm not here to hate on your priest or your parents' church, whatever tradition you were a part of growing up. But when Jesus says, go and baptize, Jesus is talking about immersion. Now, every time I talk about this and teach this on baptism, it leads to a few questions. And one of the questions that people ask me is, what age should people get baptized? And what they're really asking me is, how young is too young? And so the way I'll respond is I'll say, when we read the Bible, right, because it's scripture over tradition, when we read the Bible, we see that every person who gets baptized decides to do it for themselves. It is fully and completely their choice. Baptism was never forced on someone. It was never against their will. It was never part of a process to become a member of something. It wasn't without their knowing. And just making sure this is as clear as I can make it, there isn't an instance in scripture of babies being baptized. Now, Jesus does say, let the little children come to me. And so if a child wants to come to Jesus, we get out of the way of that. But it's really important that Jesus said, let them come to me. He didn't say, force them to come to me. And when Jesus said that in the Bible, do you know what he didn't do? He he didn't take those children and walk them down to the river to baptize them. He blessed them and sent them on their way, hoping one day that they would choose to put their faith in him. And so this is really important. In scripture, baptism is always accompanied by faith. This means that it must be done by someone old enough to grasp faith, old enough to understand sin and the need for a savior. Now we can split hairs and we can argue about what age that is. And I understand more at 37 than I did at 27 than I did at 17. But all that is to say, this is why we will not baptize babies at Collective. Because we want a child to have their own faith and choose on their own to be baptized, right? Not you choosing for them about your own faith. Another question I get asked is, I was sprinkled as a baby or I was baptized because my parents made me do it or in my church growing up, we all got baptized at a certain age on this special Sunday and I felt pressured into it or I just got baptized because I was watching everybody else do it and I don't know what I was doing. Should I get baptized again? And so let me just say this to those of you who've been wrestling with that. When that question comes up, I will always ask, did you do it in the right way? And did you do it with the right heart? Meaning, were you immersed? Really, were you baptized the way that Jesus himself was baptized? Were you baptized the way that he taught us to go and baptized? And did you do it because you understood the need for a savior? Did you do it because you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Did you do it because you wanted to give up the life you were living and you wanted to repent of that and you wanted to start following Jesus? And if the answer is no to either of those things, then you didn't really do it in the way that Jesus is talking about it. And so I do encourage those people, you should get baptized in the right way with the right heart for the first time. 
And listen, I know every time I talk about this, this creates tension for those who grew up in the Catholic church and were sprinkled as a baby. And so please hear me as I say this. Your parents, when they made that decision for you, what they were really doing is they were dedicating your life to Christ. They were really committing to the people in their church, saying, I am committing to raising my child to love Jesus. And that is a really great decision. Right? We do that here. We call them child dedications. We're doing one of those in June. But your faith is your faith. It is not theirs. You inherit none of that from them. They can't break a piece off and give it to you. Right? Your parents cannot make those decisions for you any more than they can make decisions for you today to read your Bible or to serve or to give generously. They cannot save you. They cannot repent and turn away from the way they are living for you. You cannot get forgiveness from them. They cannot be all in on Jesus for you. Only you can do that. And you have to wrestle with that place. 1 Peter 3.21 says, And that water is a picture of baptism which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so baptism is a response to faith and belief in God. It's joining with Jesus in his resurrection. And it's what Jesus commands we do when he hands over this mission of seeking and saving lost people. So let me wrap up this section by saying this. If you are ready to put your faith in Jesus, check the baptism box. We will call you this week. We'll talk, what does it mean to follow Jesus, right? to change the way you're living and, and trust him. But if you've never been baptized, even if you've been following Jesus for 50 years, there is a step of obedience that you really should take. So check the baptism box. And if you want to take seriously what Jesus said when he told his followers to go baptize and teach, but you have never been baptized before in the way that Jesus commanded, you really should check the baptism box. All right, let's go to the last action. Jesus says, go and make disciples. And when you do that, you baptize them. And then verse 20 says this, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. We read the word all, it can feel a little bit intimidating, all of the commands. But one time Jesus was asked, out of all the laws, out of all the commandments, which is the most important one? What is the top of the top? And Jesus said this, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. So Jesus says the most important commandment is to love God with every part of your life. But then Jesus quickly continued with this. He said, a second is equally important. Love your neighbors as yourself. So when we think about teaching these commandments, when we think about teaching these things to people, this is what we teach. We teach people to love God and love people. So while going, we tell as many people as possible about Jesus. And then when they believe that he is the son of God, when they believe that he came to rescue them from their sin, we baptize them and we teach them what does it look like to love God and love people? And we go, we baptize, and we teach. And like I said, I know that teach part can feel intimidating, but the best way we teach people this is through our actions. It's by taking the things that we learned in the last series in the 35-day challenge and making them a regular part of our lives. It's by living out our calling at work, like Chris talked about just a few weeks ago. It's by taking care of the needs in our community like you did just last week when you all bought hundreds of packs of diapers and wipes. That is how you show people what it looks like to love God and love people is through our actions. Pastor and author Frederick Buchner once said, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. Now, I believe a lot of Christians misunderstand this quote because they think it's about calling, but, but I don't think it is. 
I think this is a quote about being a missionary. Because what is your deep gladness? It's the hope of the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. And what is the deep hunger in the world? It's this longing for hope that they do not have. And so the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets is in you telling them about how good God is. So I'm not going to keep my faith and work separate. I'm going to humbly and clearly point people toward Jesus. I'm going to go and baptize and teach. Because if we aren't leading people to Jesus, what are we doing? During Jesus' ministry on earth, he would travel from town to town uh, teaching and preaching about God and the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 9, starting verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And so what this means is Jesus traveled around. Crowds would show up. They'd want to hear what he had to say. They want to see the miracles. They want to be a part of what he was doing. And every time he saw a crowd, every time he felt compassion. And that word compassion that's used here comes from the Greek word splagna, which means guts. And what it is, it's actually this idea of compassion not being an emotion, but being something that you physically feel. It's this deep, guttural feeling. And so when Jesus sees these people he was teaching, he felt compassion to the point of pain. When he saw them, his heart hurt for them. He ached with sadness for them. And here's why. It says, because they were confused. They were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he would look out and he would see people looking for purpose, looking for hope, looking for grace, looking for new life, looking to break free from their sin. People who are wandering aimlessly through life, not knowing that there was a better way to live. And this broke Jesus' heart every single time he saw it. But in this story, he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Here's what this means. He is saying to his disciples every day, every single day, people are dying and they are going to hell. Every day, people feel lost and broken and confused and scared and they're wandering around like sheep without a shepherd. And this is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. And the reality is I know that some of you are here today because this is exactly how you feel. You feel lost and broken and scared and you are looking for answers. And the best news that I can give you is that this is why Jesus came to earth. This is why Jesus died. This is why Jesus conquered death. So that when you put your faith in him, you don't have to wander aimlessly through life anymore. You are given purpose and hope and joy and grace and endless second chances. And it's not hyperbole for me to say that Jesus's mission was seeking and saving you. That he died for you, that he resurrected for you, that he set up this thing called the church for you. And that he told his followers to carry on this mission for you. And if you feel that way today, my hope is that this is what you find. I hope you find what you are looking for in Jesus. But if you are a Christian, if you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, you are a missionary. And Jesus says the harvest is great. The harvest is plentiful, which means there are people everywhere who need to know about grace and truth. But he also says that the workers are few. And what I, what I, when I read this, I don't think what he's saying is there's just not enough people that'll tell other people about Jesus. Here's what I think this means. I think he's saying there aren't many people who want to carry out this mission. I think he's saying that there's not enough people, not enough followers of me who actually want to do the hard work. Because the workers are few. 
And then Jesus finishes by saying this. He says, so pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. I've probably read these three verses a hundred times in my life. I remember learning about these in multiple classes in college and breaking down what they meant. I've even heard countless sermons on those three verses. But the truth is, I have always missed what we just read. Jesus says, pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Remember, when Jesus says this, this is coming from this deep longing in his soul, this deep pain in his soul, because Jesus sees that people are hurting and lost. And so Jesus says, we need to pray that God sends more people. Isn't that us? Isn't that me? And isn't that you? Sure, it's a few thousand years later, but shouldn't we be the answer to this prayer? The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So you are a missionary wherever you go. And it doesn't matter if you have a job you love, love or a job that you hate. It doesn't matter if you make a lot of money or make a little bit of money. It doesn't matter if you work in a church or if you don't work in a church. You are a missionary. So go, baptize, and teach. Earlier I mentioned uh, those three different groups of Christians and how they approach faith and work. And what was interesting was the group that expressed the most dissatisfaction in their faith and their careers, right? And it wasn't the group that integrates faith and work, which I'm sure you could have guessed. But it also wasn't the group of onlookers who aren't passionate about faith or work. The most dissatisfied group of people, of Christians, are the compartmentalizers, the people who are passionate about work and they're passionate about faith, but who are determined to keep the two things, things separate. In fact, there's a quote from the study that said this, this group is the least satisfied with the overall quality of their life, overall quality of work, but they're also dissatisfied with their future, their friendships, and their emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being. Translation, it takes effort to keep your faith and work separate, and it almost leaves you feeling like you're living a double life. And when you do it that way, you will be miserable, and you will struggle in your work, and you will struggle in your career, but you will also begin to struggle in all those things that matter to you, in your family, in your parenting, in your relationships. And this is not sustainable. So will you integrate your faith and work? Will you seek and save the lost? Will you make disciples? Will you be a missionary wherever you go? Will you go, baptize, and teach? Let's pray. God, as we finish up this series on work, I know the past few weeks, there's been a lot of wrestling. God, I know that there are a lot of people in this church who are struggling to find joy and purpose and hope in their careers. And so God, we pray right now that things begin to change. And things don't begin to change because their boss gets better, their coworkers get better, that one person that can't stand leaves. God, that things begin to change because we begin to realize that those 90,000 hours that we call work should be dedicated to you to be dedicated to living out our calling, should be dedicated to seeking and saving the lost, to be dedicated to telling other people just how great you are. So God, that we can have purpose and we can have joy and we can have hope in this thing called work. God, more than anything, we wanna give thanks uh, that you chose to seek and save us. God, that you recognize that we were lost, that we were wandering around like sheep without a shepherd, that we were hopeless and that we were broken and that we didn't know what to do. 
And God, you didn't look at us and say, well, that's their problem now. God, you looked at us and said, I need to solve this. And the first thing that you did was give up your life for us. But then the second thing you did was conquer the grave and give that mission forward to people who follow you. So God, where we are so thankful that you sought us out, that you chose to save us. God, we pray right now that we have the boldness to continue to do that for you. That we continue to bring people to you and to a place of understanding that you love them so much that you would give up your life for them. God, we're thankful that you did that. God, we're thankful that we don't have to wander aimlessly through life anymore, that we have purpose and that we have hope. But God, help us realize that it's not just for us because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. God, help us be those people that Jesus prayed for thousands of years ago and help us step up to go baptize and teach. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.